Home is where you feel safe. For me, home is a uh, family. Number one, uh, my parents. Let me be specific. Home is uh, a sense of belonging to a land, a country, uh, to people, to community. Home is where I feel safe, loved, and cared for. And welcome to Hometown, your weekly Lent and Easter podcast on refugee welcome in the Episcopal Church and across the United States. I'm Allison Duval, And I'm Kendall Martin. Welcome to Episode 7. Hometown is a podcast from Episcopal Migration Ministries, the Refugee Resettlement and Welcome Ministry of the Episcopal Church. Learn more about our work on our website, www.episcopalmigrationministries.org, and Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where we are EMM Refugees. This podcast is part of the Good Book Club initiative, which invites all Episcopalians to come together to read the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles throughout Lent and Easter 2018. You can find the daily readings, resources, and much more at goodbookclub.org or on Facebook, The Good Book Club. If you're following the church calendar, you know that today is Palm Sunday. Appropriately, the Good Book Club readings for this week are Luke chapter 22, verse 47, through the end of Luke's Gospel. For the last few days, the readings have been preparing us for this moment. Jesus has spoken about the last days, admonished his disciples to remain alert, and foretold the destruction of the temple. All of this brings us to this moment, to Holy Week. As we begin our walk to Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, and Holy Saturday, we again reflect on scripture together. We are honored and so deeply grateful to welcome Presiding Bishop Michael Curry to the podcast as we pray and reflect together. We hope you enjoy this week's reflection. A reading from the Passion according to St. Luke. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, crying with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, He breathed his last. Into your hands I commend my spirit. It was the ancient tradition that young children received their earliest education in the faith of Judaism, learning the Psalms as the hymns of Israel, usually from their mother. And it may well be that Jesus in these last moments of his earthly life remembered what his mother had taught him. For these words are nothing less than the words of the 31st Psalm, probably taught to Jesus by Mary. In the Psalm it reads, In you, O Lord, I seek refuge. Do not let me ever be put to shame. For in your righteousness deliver me. You are indeed my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake lead me and guide me. Take me out of the net that is hidden for me, for you are my refuge. For into your hands I commend my spirit, and you have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. It may well be that Jesus dying remembered what his mother taught him, remembered the deepest prayer that was on his heart, and he called up that memory 
to lead him and guide him. Into thy hands I commend my spirit. In the 20th century, there was a man named Thomas Dorsey. He was a Christian pastor, but he was also a hymn writer. He was married and deeply loved his wife. She was pregnant and about to give birth. And unfortunately, there were complications to the birth. And in those days, medical care was not what it is today. And she died giving birth, both she and the child. In his grief, he remembered these words of the psalmist. And he wrote the words of a hymn, a hymn that was a favorite hymn of Martin Luther King, a hymn that Dr. King, moments before he was assassinated, looked down and saw one of the musicians who was due to play at the church service that night. And Dr. King said to him, I want you to play Precious Lord, the words that were written by Thomas Dorsey after his wife and child died. Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on, let me stand. I'm tired, I'm weak, I'm lorn. Through the storm, through the night, lead me on to the light. Take my hand, precious Lord, and lead me on. No matter what comes, no matter what life may bring, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. In good days and bad, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And trusting in God and leaving our lives there, we can live our lives facing whatever may come our way. God love you. God bless you. And may God hold us all in those almighty hands of love. Amen. Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on, let me stand, I am tired, I am And
wow. You know, Kendall, whenever we approach Holy Week, I'm always in a different place in my life and in my, you know, my, my faith journey. And I, I imagine there's as many ways to experience Holy Week as there are Christians <laughs> who are, you know, walking into Holy Week. Um, what the presiding bishop's reflection makes me think about, especially in light of what we've been doing the past few weeks on the podcast, is how holy Jesus, through his passion, identifies with human suffering. And I listen, you know, to presiding bishop Curry speak about the hymn Precious Lord and Thomas Dorsey, um, you know, listen to that beautiful hymn being sung. And I I can't help but think about the incredible suffering that refugees experience. I find myself this Holy Week kind of wanting to take a step back from the theology of the Passion and just, you know, f- face and deal with some of the bare bones details of the story um, that Jesus experienced what so many refugees have experienced and fled. So, yeah, that's, I mean, that's really what I'm thinking about. That's what I was reflecting on as I listened to presiding Bishop Curry speak. And it's, it, this is a different Holy Week for me this year, I think. It's, you know, it's, this has never really hit me this way before. It was just a really moving experience all the way across and to think about hearing about Jesus and thinking about Jesus suffering and then hearing the story about Thomas Dorsey and, you know, this personal suffering he endured that had him write this beautiful hymn. Mm. Um, And then to have Bishop Curry talking about Martin Luther King giving the instruction to the musician to like go on and sing that hymn. It was just really powerful. Yeah. There's, there's so much going on. It's a really special way to start Holy Week this year. Yeah, absolutely. Now, as has been our pattern, we're going to discuss the nation of Uganda in connection to refugees in advance of next week's episode, when we interview Jackie, who is from Uganda and now lives in Ohio. There's quite a lot to say about Uganda as it relates to the question of refugees, and always the caveat, neither of us is a historian nor expert at any particular situation. We'll include our sources in the podcast notes and on our website, and encourage you to read and learn more. And also, if you have information to share, we would love for you to engage with us on social media. Excellent. Well, with with Uganda, as with every other country that we'll discuss, there's really no easy way to distill down any country's story to a few minutes for our podcast. But we don't think that this is a fool's errand either. We really think it's important to know the broad strokes so that we can kind of understand the complexity of any given refugee situation. So a brief sketch of what we plan to cover on this episode. We'll start with the geography and a brief history of Uganda. We'll discuss unrest since Uganda's independence. And then we'll talk about Uganda as a refugee hosting country, which is gonna bring us right up to the present day. And we'll discuss the New York Declaration for Refugees and Migrants. Much of the background that we're going to cover comes from the Library of Congress 
country study on Uganda, which is public domain, and it's available along with other country studies at loc.gov, as in libraryofcongress.gov. All right, let's get started. Uganda is located in Central East Africa in Africa's Great Lakes region, where it is bordered by Tanzania to the south, Kenya to the east, South Sudan to the north, the DRC to the west, and Rwanda to the southwest. Its beautiful and diverse landscape includes snow-capped mountains, waterfalls, and the immense Lake Victoria, which it shares with Kenya and Tanzania. It has abundant wildlife, including chimpanzees, gorillas, hippos, and rare birds. Until the mid-19th century, the land that came to be Uganda was relatively isolated. Bantu-speaking kingdoms dominated the south, the largest of which was Buganda, and Nilotic-speaking groups lived in the north. Tensions between these groups have been a dominant theme in Uganda's history, even prior to colonialism. World demand for ivory opened Uganda to the outside world, to Arab traders who arrived in the 1830s, and to Europeans. British explorers arrived in Uganda in the 1860s while searching for the source of the Nile. European Christian missionary activities soon followed, with British missionaries in 1877 and French Catholic missionaries in 1879. In the 1880s, religious wars broke out, first between Muslims and Christians, and later between Protestants, evangelized by the British, and Catholics, evangelized by the French. The unrest in the region endangered British commercial interests, leading the British to establish the Uganda Protectorate in 1894. As a protectorate, Uganda maintained a level of self-government, unlike its neighbor, Kenya, which was a British colony under full colonial administration. That said, simmering tensions between various groups remained, and the Buganda from the southern part of the protectorate, who became administrators on behalf of the British, were resented by those they administered. Divisions deepened during the protectorate and have had ripple effects to the present day. In a 1987 paper called The Colonial Roots of Internal Conflict in Uganda, Samwiri Luanga Lunigo states, colonialism failed miserably through omission or commission to lay the foundations for the building of a nation out of the protectorate. That said, when Uganda became independent in 1962, there was little indication that the country was headed for disaster. On the contrary, it appeared a model of stability and potential progress. Uganda's first few years of self-rule saw a series of successful development projects. The new government built many new schools, modernized the transportation network, and increased manufacturing output as well as national income. Uganda's first prime minister, Milton Obote, had a talent for working with different groups in the country who were divided from one another by distance, language, cultural tradition, historical animosities, and rivalries in the form of competing religions, Islam, Roman Catholicism, and Protestantism. The government over which he presided was made up of coalitions of local and regional interest groups that loosely organized themselves into political parties. The new government worked well for a time, and it might reasonably have been expected to continue to work because there were exchanges and payoffs at all levels and to all regions. Uganda's descent into military anarchy was not inevitable, but some historians and observers note that the long-standing tensions among groups in Uganda and the lack of a coherent nationalism contributed to political disintegration. The first major challenge to the Obote government came from the military. 
In January 1964, units of the Ugandan military mutinied, demanding higher pay and more rapid promotions. Minister of Defense Onama, who courageously went to speak to the mutineers, was seized and held hostage. Obote was forced to call in British troops to restore order, which was a humiliating blow. In the aftermath, Obote's government acceded to all of the mutineers' demands. The military then began to assume a more prominent role in Ugandan life. Obote selected a popular junior officer with minimal education, Idi Amin Dada, and promoted him rapidly through the ranks as a personal protege. As the army expanded, it became a source of political patronage and of potential political power. Long story short, over the next several years, challengers tested Obote's government, and to remain in power, Obote turned to Idi Amin and the army to stage a coup against his own government. Obote suspended the constitution, arrested leaders in the UPC party who were challenging him, and seized control. When the constitution was suspended, it removed power from the semi-autonomous kingdoms, like the Buganda, and concentrated powers in the prime minister's office. Obote sent Idi Amin to attack the Buganda Kabaka, or king, and he fled and went into exile. The Buganda was divided into four districts and placed under military rule a foreshadowing of what was to come. By January 1971, Obote sensed that Idi Amin was becoming a threat to his rule and moved to arrest him and his supporters in the army. Idi Amin caught wind of this and struck first, striking targets in Kampala and Entebbe. Amin quickly squashed his disorganized opposition and ordered mass killings of Acholi and Langi troops. The Amun coup was warmly welcomed by most of the people of the Buganda kingdom, who seemed willing to forget that their new president, Idi Amin, had previously organized their own military oppression. Amin made the usual statements about his government's intent to play a mere caretaker role until the country could recover sufficiently for civilian rule. His government was quickly recognized by Israel, Britain, and the United States. By contrast, the presidents of Kenya, Zambia, and Tanzania, and the Organization of African Unity, initially refused to accept the legitimacy of this new military government. Amin's military experience, which was virtually his only experience, determined the character of his rule. He completely reorganized the government until Uganda was in effect governed from a collection of military barracks scattered across the country where battalion commanders, acting like local warlords, represented the coercive arm of the government. He instituted the State Research Bureau, which became the scene of torture and grisly executions over the next several years. Idi Amin's rule was an eight-year reign of terror, where torture, disappearance, and mass murder of political enemies and opponents were commonplace. A report by the New York City Bar Association's Committee on International Human Rights estimated that the number of victims of Amin's reign of terror was between 100,000 and 500,000. Many prominent Ugandans died during the Amin regime, including Chief Justice Benedicto Kiwanuka and Anglican Archbishop Janani Luwum. After Amin was removed, unrest remained. To cover a lot of history in very little time, a military coup in 1980 to replace the Amin regime led to the Military Commission, headed by Obote ally Paulo Mwanga, governing the country for six months leading up to national elections in December 1980. 
Abote, who had been building up his supporters while living in exile in Tanzania, returned triumphantly to Uganda. In the first elections in 18 years, which were contested, Abote won. Abote came into office with Muanga as his vice president and minister of defense. Yoweri Museveni, a former military commission member, and his armed supporters declared themselves the National Resistance Army and vowed to overthrow Abote by means of a popular rebellion. Museveni had guerrilla experience from fighting with the Front for the Liberation of Mozambique and went on a campaign to garner support in rural areas that were hostile to Abote's government. The Abote government's four-year military effort to destroy its challengers resulted in vast devastation and greater loss of life even than during the eight years of Amin's rule. The overall death toll from 1981 to 1985 was estimated to be as high as half a million. In this deteriorating military and economic situation, Abote subordinated other matters to a military victory over Museveni. North Korean military advisors were invited to take part against the NRA rebels in what was to be a final campaign that won neither British nor United States approval. But the army was war-weary, and after the death of the highly capable General Ojak at the end of 1983, it began to split along ethnic lines. Then, as if determined to replay the January 1971 events that led to his overthrow by Amin, Abote once again left the capital after giving orders for the arrest of a leading commander, Brigadier Okello, who mobilized troops and entered Kampala on July 27, 1985. Abote, together with a large entourage, fled the country for Zambia, allegedly taking much of the national treasury with him. Okello led the military government for about six months, and as it began to disintegrate in early 1986, Museveni seized power at the head of a guerrilla army in a violent coup, and still today, he heads a corrupt regime. In 2003, the U.S. State Department called Uganda's human rights record poor and charged in a report that Museveni's security forces committed unlawful killings and tortured and beat suspects to force confessions. In the mid to late 2000s and into the 2010s, our listeners may remember the brutal Lord's Resistance Army and its leader, Joseph Kony. Well, Museveni's suppression of the Acholi people, to which Joseph Kony belonged, is generally cited as a catalyst for the rise of the LRA. There was public and widespread organizing in the United States to draw attention to the LRA and demand U.S. and global condemnation. Organizations like Invisible Children, which created a documentary about Kony's abduction of children to use as child soldiers. His brutality was compared to that of Pol Pot, and his tactics earned him the nickname Africa's David Koresh, referring to the leader of the Branch Davidians. More than just the leader of an armed rebel group, Kony was a fanatical fundamentalist cult leader. In a 2012 hearing of the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations Subcommittee on Africa, Senator Christopher Coons of Delaware said that Joseph Kony epitomizes the worst of mankind and evil in the modern day. The civil war against the LRA led to hundreds of thousands of deaths in one of Africa's largest internally displaced persons, or IDP, crises. Listeners, you might recall that we discussed the differences between IDPs and refugees in episode one, where refugees have been able to cross a border to seek safety, 
internally displaced persons find themselves displaced from their homes but still stuck with precarious and oftentimes life-threatening situations within their home countries. In the last 10 years, the LRA has seen many defections and decreased considerably in size and power. In 2010, the Obama administration made it U.S. policy to assist in the search for Kony. While the warlord is still at large, his forces have dwindled to less than 100, and Uganda and the U.S. have called off their hunt for him, with a spokesman for the Ugandan Ministry of Defense saying that Kony no longer poses any significant threat to Uganda's security. All right, listeners, let's switch gears. Uganda is a complicated place. Despite its turbulent and challenging recent history, Uganda today has one of the world's most progressive policies toward refugees. Yeah, let's let's talk about that a moment. And to do that, we'll zoom out kind of with a wide angle lens. We're going to zoom out for a second and understand Uganda's recent posture towards refugees in a much larger context. So in September 2016, just a year and a half ago, the United Nations hosted its Global Summit on Refugees and Migration. And the major outcomes of this summit were two things. One, the Comprehensive Refugee Response Framework. And second, what's called the New York Declaration, or its longer name, the New York Declaration on Refugees and Migrants. Yes, this meeting was critical, and if we can rewind in time back to 2015 and the lead-up to the September 2016 summit, you might remember that in the fall of 2015, the media's attention was focused on the refugee crisis. After the heart-wrenching photo of Syrian toddler Aylan Kurdi's body washed up on a Turkish shore hit the news, there was an outpouring of compassion and an outcry. People wanted to help and demanded that their nation step up to provide safety to refugees and try to solve this global crisis. As an example, Germany took in 1.1 million refugees in 2015. The Canadian government and civil society greatly increased their country's resettlement program, resettling a record 46,700 refugees in 2016. And those are just two examples. There are so many more of countries across the globe increasing their resettlement programs to respond to this great need. So whereas in fiscal year 2016, the United States set its refugee admissions number at 85,000, President Obama set the refugee admissions number for fiscal year 2017 to 110,000. And this happened, listeners, in the weeks surrounding the summit. And while at the summit, all 193 UN member states unanimously adopted the non-binding New York Declaration, pledging to uphold the rights of refugees, help them resettle, and ensure that they have access to education and jobs, amongst other commitments, the political tides were turning in Europe and here at home in the United States. We were in the midst of a presidential campaign where for the first time in history, our nation's refugee resettlement policies were front and center. In the years since the U.S. adopted the U.N. Declaration, and since the Obama administration set the admissions number at 110,000 refugees, we've seen numerous executive orders from the Trump administration that have stalled or halted the resettlement of refugees fleeing life-threatening situations. In fiscal year 2017, the U.S. resettled only 53,716 of the 110,000 ceiling that was originally set. So this is less than half. 
In October 2017, the Trump administration set the fiscal year 2018 refugee admission ceiling at 45,000, half the historic average. Yet, admissions have slowed so drastically that it's unlikely that we will be even close to resettling 45,000 this year. That is all helpful, this larger context in which we can return to our discussion of Uganda and its refugee policies. Yeah, as we said before, Uganda has some of the world's most progressive policies as a refugee hosting country. In Uganda, refugees are provided work permits, given places to live, and permitted to remain as long as necessary. And so, listeners, to return to our discussion of the New York Declaration, from which we should note for you, the U.S. withdrew in December 2017. Well, in adopting the declaration, member states expressed a profound solidarity with those who are forced to flee. They reaffirmed their obligations to fully respect the human rights of refugees and migrants, agreed that protecting refugees and the countries that shelter them are shared international responsibilities, which must be borne equitably and predictably. They pledged robust support to those countries affected by large movements of refugees and migrants, and agreed upon the core elements of a comprehensive refugee response framework. And finally, and this is where we kind of bring ourselves up to the present day, in the New York Declaration, these countries agreed to work towards the adoption of a global compact on refugees, and a global compact for safe, orderly, and regular migration. And impressively, Uganda was the first country to officially roll out the Comprehensive Refugee Response Framework. And the four key objectives of the Comprehensive Refugee Response Framework are to ease pressure on host countries, like Uganda, enhance refugee self-reliance, expand third country solutions, meaning resettlement and humanitarian admission, and support conditions in countries of origin for refugees to be able to return in safety and dignity. UNHCR is working with governments and other stakeholders to apply the Comprehensive Refugee Response Framework in a number of countries, including Djibouti, Ethiopia, Honduras, Uganda, and the United Republic of Tanzania, and through a regional approach to the Somalia situation. We encourage all of you to learn more, watch for news, and be aware of what's going on in the world around us, especially with regard to different nations' refugee policies and their impact on human lives. I'm really interested to see what happens in Uganda as as Uganda and other nations implement this comprehensive refugee response framework. And um, as we said a, a little while ago, listeners, the UN this year is moving toward adoption later in the year of these global compacts on refugees and on safe, orderly, and regular migration. Yes, be sure to stay tuned on EMM's social media, especially where we regularly post relevant news and other media on refugees. We'll certainly be posting about these global compacts as they take shape later this year. Listeners, thank you for joining us this week. We're truly humbled by your support, and we will hold you in prayer this holy week. We're so grateful for each and every one of you. Thank you. And as you journey through Holy Week, we invite you to prayerfully support Episcopal Migration Ministries with a donation. No gift is too small, and all are put to use to welcome our newest neighbors. You can visit episcopalmigrationministries.org forward slash give 
or text hometown to 51555. We are so grateful to Whit Whitaker for joining us this week to sing the hymn Precious Lord. Whit is a native of Detroit, Michigan, and now lives in Lexington, Kentucky, where he is a member of Good Shepherd Episcopal Church. Whit is known for his roles on stage. He was most recently Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in the play The Meeting, and has played the Pasha Salim in the Mozart opera The Abduction from the Seraglio. He is a member of several choral ensembles, including the American Spiritual Ensemble, the Lexington Singers, the Kentucky Bach Choir, and the New Voices Vocal Jazz Ensemble. He's also the lead singer and percussionist in his own band, The Mercy Men. You can learn more about WIT on our blog this week, EpiscopalMigrationMinistries.org forward slash blog. And our theme song was composed and recorded by Abraham Mwenda Ikondo. Find his music at AbrahamMwendaMusic.com. Stay tuned for a bonus episode this Holy Week that will feature another song from Abraham and an interview with a friend and colleague in this field, Emily Jones, who is the immigration attorney at Kentucky Refugee Ministries in Lexington. Tune in next week and tell your friends about the Hometown Podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, where we are EMM Refugees. Until next week, peace be with you and all those you consider home. When my way is almost gone, my dear God, precious Lord, take my hand when I am And deep.